You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanking and acknowledging the wonderful team in the library that has brought all of this occasion together and for their <coughs> persistence and patience and dedication, if I may say so. Um, I don't take any credit for this wonderful success they've had, but I have to say that... Um, yeah, I've been cha- I've been championing these manuscripts for more decades than I can count at this stage, and I honestly never thought that this day would come. So it is a wonderful, wonderful occasion. Now we have a total of eleven liturgical service books digitised for this project. By service books, we mean books used in the celebration of the liturgy, mass, office, and administration of the sacraments. Now, just a few little words here about definitions, because I know people who don't work on these sources find it quite difficult to to work out the the categories and what they're for. Um, So here we have a slide, which hopefully will be a useful summary for you, that an an antiphonal contains music. It's the chant for the office. So you see, I put a couple of little notes there as a a mnemonic. The gradual is then the, the book for the mass that contains the chants for the mass. And a missal includes <laughs> prayers and readings <clears throat> for the Mass, and it's sometimes what we call a noted missal. That's when it contains music notation. A breviary is a composite manuscript which contains all the material for the office. And the breviary, too, can be, as I say, noted. We're always particularly happy when we find the noted ones. But having said that, it's important, I think, to bear in mind, and this is something that one doesn't always... Well, it doesn't always come to the, the mind of people who were cataloguing those in the past that just because there's no music notation doesn't mean that the texts weren't sung because you'll have all the chant texts in the breviary as well. So that's just why I, I like to emphasise that although the focus might be on music, we're looking for much more than manuscripts that contain notation. We're looking for texts that were sung. <clears throat> then we have the lectionary, which contains the readings. And then a book known as a pontifical, which is the bishop's book, which he used for ordinations, blessings of a new church, etc. And uh, sacramentary, which would be a composite book for administering all of the sacraments. And finally, a psalter or book of psalms. It often formed part of a breviary, and sometimes, sometimes you find the psalms um, have some notation in them. Now, these are the manuscripts that I have on my list of the ones that have been digitised. Five of them, yeah, I'll just give you a little summary. Uh, five of them have um, are serum manuscripts. In other words, they represent the practice of the use of Salisbury. That's 77, 78, 79, 80 and 88. And then 82 and 86 are Carmelite manuscripts, um, a breviary and a missal from Kilmoon, County Meath. 84 is an Arawasian manuscript from Trim, St. Mary's Abbey Trim. And 109 is a Franciscan Roman missal. And finally, we have 83, which is a missal of the use of York, and 98, which is a pontifical from Canterbury. Apart from the York missal and the Canterbury pontifical, all show evidence of having been used in Ireland and probably many of them were made in Ireland. That's not always easy to establish. Now just a couple of words about manuscripts 78 and 88. Um, I thought I'd include this and I'm glad to see that some people yesterday (laughs) included nice pictures as well, which is good because 
Um, well, there are no, two reasons. It's not vanity as such, but first of all, you know, it's, we had a wonderful session and we've had many, and this was in connection with um, a documentary that Michael McGlynn is preparing at the moment. It's uh, not something, it's, it's early stages, and I'm not sure what he's going to do, but it's going to be a, a big survey of music in medieval Ireland. So we were only too happy to facilitate him, as were um, Claire and Estelle, to facilitate us. But there, I have a second reason for showing you that, as well as looking at the digitized folios, um, I wanted to give you an idea of what the manuscripts look like. And <clears throat> the small one, smaller uh, rather, at the top is manuscript 88. Um, and it's actually, even though it's small in frame, it's uh, only 458 by 308 millimetres. It has 177, oh sorry, I've got it wrong. I beg your pardon, I'll correct it. That was 78, excuse me. Phys physical extent is, four, is 458 by 308, and it's 177 folios. That's this lower one here, I beg your pardon. It's a big one that Estelle was talking about. It's just quite a weight to carry. And these manuscripts, the antiphonals, would have been placed on a lectern with the singers, the choir, standing in a semicircle around them. And then the bulky one at the top is manuscript 88, which is a manuscript from Dublin, and its physical extent has 466 folios. So that is a breviary, uh, obviously not a pocket breviary given its bulk, but it wasn't for communal sharing. It would have been for uh, you know individuals or maybe on, on the desk or something like that. It's not noted. So how do we recognise that manuscripts were Irish? They are not liturgically distinctive by this time. I mean, when we talk about earlier pre-Norman liturgical manuscripts, it's much more obvious because we have writings in Irish, we have texts in Irish, we can trace ownership, etc. But at this time, we're talking about largely what we might call standard liturgy, such as serum or, or, or liturgies relating to the re religious orders. But in the case of a number of these, um, Sorry, I'll come on to that in a minute. A number of these, we have um, indications of Irish ownership, for example, or added commons and inscriptions from known places and people, such as the later Clondalkin owners of Manuscript 78, or references in Manuscript 79 to St. John's and St. Olaf's churches. The only other criteria which set Irish manuscripts apart without those definite signs is the inclusion of Irish saints in the calendars and of offices and prayers for Irish saints in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is that section of the manuscript which is devoted specifically to what we call propers, proper texts, rather than just texts for the day or general texts, say for a, a virgin martyr or, a, or um, a bishop or or a confessor or, and so on. So the sanctuary is, as I say, contains the propers. And this is, once we look at the calendar, then we go immediately to the sanctuary to see who, who's in the calendar, also represented in the sanctuary. A particularly rich example is actually manuscript 88, that bulky one that I showed you a moment ago. Um, the original of which includes in the calendar um, lessons for a, a raft of Irish, excuse me, mention of, of a raft of Irish saints, too many for me to go into today. But as well as that, the Sanctoral includes nine lesson liturgies for Bridget, Patrick, Columba, the translation of Bridget, Patrick and Columba, and Canis. And more significant still, along with a collect and three lesson services, it, excuse me, it also includes a collect and three lesson services for Lasrean, Lawrence O'Toole, Medoic, who is also known as Aidan, or Moog, 
Brendan of Clonfert. So that is, a, you know, a very, very unusual uh, concentration of Irish material. Now I'd like to move on just to show you a little bit about the kinds of calendars and what we mean by the calendars. This, um, this one here has, first of all, to note, if they're in red, that means what we call a red letter date still, um, it means that it was um, a more important feast. And you can see there, in the case of Bridget, um, sorry, I'm not sure that's a pointer, it doesn't matter. Um, you have here, St. Bridget, St. Bridget, St. Bridget is non-martyrist because she, like very few Irish saints were martyrs and none of them based in Ireland were. And this is a duplex festo, meaning that it's a more important higher status feast. And there are nine lections. Again, the more important feasts would have nine. The standard days would have three. And then underneath that, we have the purification of the Virgin Mary, also a duplex. Now, it's, you would find the Virgin Mary, obviously, uh, in all of the materials, but you will find Bridget more in more local manuscripts. Uh, yes, also, yes, I meant to mention, we have here War Warburg, or Warburga, who still has a church dedicated to her in Dublin. And uh, this is really significant because I won't have time to go into full calendrical analysis, but some of the um, saints that are in here wouldn't always be in the Serum calendar. They would be English saints from regions of England that were particularly connected with the Irish church and with, indeed, um, economic relations. And in this case, it's, Ch it's Chester, which, as you all know, I'm sure, was very closely linked to Dublin, particularly in, in the area of um, e economics and, obviously, too, in terms of um, church links. So she turns up in most of the Irish manuscripts, whereas you won't find her in your standard serum, but you'll find her in manuscripts associated with the west of England. Yes, and again, I'm not going to go into all this. Uh, there are um, uh, some 16th century annotations which would make a marvellous study for anyone who wanted to focus on this aspect. It's not something that I would be competent to or have time for indeed. But there is a, and indeed if I may so, say so, um, our next speaker will be speaking about some of that aspect, which is really good and complimentary. Um, anyhow, just to say briefly that there are references here to, uh, to Clondalkin. And that's why it's called the Clondalkin Breviary. Um, that's how it's been classified. Um, but it, first of all, it's not a breviary, it's an antiphonal. And second of all, <laughs> we talked about this, yes. And, and second of all, um, it's, uh, it have a, has a lot of extra, actually I should go on to the next slide probably. Uh, yes, I'll hurry on here. Yes, there's the Clondalkin reference. I'm sorry, I skipped a little bit there. Yeah, you see here, you have a dedication to the Kiron of Sire, 5th of uh, March, and obviously, obviously, as we will mention, St. Patrick is down here. And then, for St. Canis, is here. Now, he doesn't turn up in all that many calendars, and I think it's the only example of him being in red. And also there is actually material in praise of Kilkenny and uh, so on. So the two very strong uh, Diocese of Ossery references with Canis and, and uh, Chiron and the big office for Canis 
including material in praise of Kilkenny, suggests to many of us, I'm not alone in this, that it probably started off life in Kilkenny, probably, um, but it seems to have gone to Clondalkin at an early stage. Now we also have here, again we're linking with the west of England, we have here St Thomas of Hereford, here, and well, St. Francis, obviously not West England, but just to show again, you know, we, we have all sorts of patterns going on in these calendars that merit a lot of study and have potential to yield a great deal of local as well as international information. Now, just to move away from the Irish material for a moment, because I think it's really important to show the, the, the insular and the wider international aspect of these sources. I mean, you know, the Irish material is part of a much bigger passion, a much bigger network. And that includes the chance as well, of course. Occasionally we find a chance that we can't find in any other source. I'm very hesitant to use the term unique or locally composed, but we have to keep the door open on that one. But essentially we're talking about a repertoire that was common to the entire Western Church. And the chants were used and applied and adapted in different ways. They weren't about being individuals inventing new me melodies. They were about fitting, making something fit its purpose. So um, that was a, lo a long aside now, but I just wanted to mention that um, the, the patterns are very, very similar, but these saints tell us a lot of different things. So now I'm just going to look very briefly at manuscript 83. Yes, there we are, which is known as the York Missal here. Um, so... Uh, it's made for the province of York. Um, its calendar includes the Feast of the Translation of William of York as a red-letter day. It includes British as well, interestingly, but then uh, Bridget does occur in most English calendars as well. She, she persisted, and there were all sorts of patterns of devotion to her cult, cult down the centuries, which again would merit a lot of, um, of further study, I think. Patrick seems to disappear quite early on. But there is some little t end, there is a little uh, tale to this in a moment. Now, first of all, you can see in highlighted form, just in case you couldn't, just to make it easier for you, the translation of William of York here, and uh, here is Bridget. The Feast of William of York is also hi highlighted in, an, in the calendar, but I haven't got time to show all of that. Now, here again, you see the service for William of York, Archbishop of York. And just to draw attention to him, because he was an important person in York, and they wanted to highlight the material for him. It's got a little bit of decoration. <coughs> now, before I get go on, go on to this next item, I would just like to mention that um, the other English saints whose feasts and office are highlighted is John of Beverley. He sometimes appears in Serum calendars but always in York. So William and John there really do seem to underline all of this connection. Bridget, as I said, is also found in the calendar but not Patrick. But he is included in additional material in the form of a sequence. And before I get to that, just to, re to revisit the York connection, there are obituaries in this uh, Missal, referring to members of the Norton family, including one John Norton of Patrick Brompton. Now, in my ignorance, I thought, Pat, who's Patrick Brompton? It turns out that um, the parish church of Patrick, there is a parish church of Patrick Brompton, and it continues to be named for St. Patrick. 
And I think this is the likely explanation for the addition of the sequence in Patrick's name, rather than any suggestion that the book was used in Ireland. So here we have, uh, yeah, yeah, show you this one first. <coughs> yes, here it is, excuse me. Sequencia, do you see? Sequencia Sancti Patricii, starting down here. And this, this is two sides of the folio, the beginning and the continuation of it. Um, this this later looks is also found in the so-called Dublin Troper, which is a manuscript now in Cambridge University Library. And I keep praying that the Carnegie Angel may bless them one day, <laughs> because I very much would like to see this and a couple of other Irish manuscripts in, in non-Irish libraries being digitised. It would just complete the, the picture for us. I did ask them and they said, it could be done with a thousand pounds. So I'm putting it out there. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think it's very interesting because later looks doesn't occur in um, the Irish manuscripts, as far as I know. Could be wrong, but as far as I know. And it's interesting that it's in the Dublin Troper, and which is very much well associated, it's not just associated, it belonged to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and it was very much at the beginnings of the development of what you would what English serum, I suppose. I mean it's it's early days for the development of the English liturgy in Dublin or the insular liturgy, which it eventually became. Um, so I have a question, but no answer to it. It leads me to wonder um, how many other fragments there could be for Irish saints, but in, say, in, in English sources. And normally people who, who, know, who are working in other fields wouldn't be particularly looking for Irish saints, so maybe they didn't notice them. But I'd really like to know more about that. Plus, um, there are quite a lot of dedications to Irish saints, in, or to Patrick and Bridget in particular, in many parts of England which are not modern dedications, but they're older dedications. And um, so, again, I think we could perhaps find more links there too. Thank you, Susie. Um, I'm not going to have time to play my pieces, but it doesn't matter. I will. Yes, will I? Have I have to play the piece. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Nothing like having a party piece. <laughs> so, um, right. So this is the office. Of, I just wanted to move on to the sanctuary. You know, the parts of the office of the manuscript which are have the longer text, the, the complete ceremonies for the, the feast days of the saints. And just to give you a few examples, here is oops, sorry, what have I done? Oops. Got it. Sorry about that. Yeah. It's an antiphon from Matins from uh, our old friend seventy eight, our ossery, clodok and brevery stroke antipodal. <laughs> the next one there we are um, again I'm not going to take up too much time but just to show you that um, these texts are based very often on the life of the saint as are the readings so in other words there's a huge hagiographical dimension which also I think would, 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 would uh, bring a lot of um, good results if, if people were to work more on the linking as to which hagiographic texts they used and which sources you know there, there are only so many um, there's only so much time one person can do, but 
I'm sure there'll be others who'd like to follow on. So they're, they're, you know, very often for what you might call the universal saints, they would be what you might call fairly generic texts. Um, but for the local saints, and this is not necessarily the case only in Ireland, it applies right across Europe, the local saints who became part of the office around really around the 12th, 13th century, which is, I'm glad to say, a very, very active field of research. They tend to be much more rooted in their locality and therefore have you know, stories from the life and so on. They're not only about being holy or supplication or something like that. So just quickly... I think I would go to the next one actually because I'm holding it. Are you sure? <laughs> oh yes, that's right. It's the three together. Is it loud enough? And then an example of a hymn for St. Patrick. I think I've got it. You got it? Please do tell me to stop if you... No, no, we're okay. We're all right.
this doesn't have a recording, but the next one does, and that's it then. Um, there's an antiphon for, Saint, for Vespers for St. Canis, and I wanted to put it in because it has the references to Ossery and to Kilkenny. And it's a peculiar, um, I think it's very exciting. I think Connor shares this enthusiasm with me when you see these names coming through in old medieval chant. It's always a surprise because we're not accustomed to local, the local to this extent, but it's all there to be uncovered and disclosed. Um, yes, now the next one, uh, have we had time to read that? Now we have something from the group that performed last night.
just a very quick point that not only do we have the office for the Feast of Canis, we also have material for the octave, the eighth day after his feast. Again, that shows how important he was to the people who used this book. Oh, sorry. No, I'm definitely stopping. Excuse me. There we are. Let's do the first one. It doesn't matter, I had to finish. I just have one well, final concluding point, that I've shown examples of different historical quote-unquote lives of the medieval liturgy in terms of local texts, added material, and history of ownership. And today this practice continues in a world very different from that in which they were originally created and used, through digitisation, study, and performance. These texts were never meant for private reading, as we were talking about earlier there, Susie, but for use in communities, read aloud as spoken prayers, intoning the psalms and lections and singing of the chant. And it is this performative aspect which permits us to breathe new life into these books, which have remained silent and ignored for centuries. Of course, they are no longer used as liturgical service books, but now, in addition to research and study, their texts can be shared anew, and not least through making them better known and more accessible in ways that reach far beyond their original purpose through the advanced technology of digitization and internet access. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.